and welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and lately what I've been doing is talking about bunches and bunches of scary movies, because people, it's Halloween season, and this seemed like a pretty good way to get up for the game. So this is how I'm getting up for the game. Anyway, I, uh, you know, I'm going to be honest with you people, I had a little bit of a little bit of trouble uh, trying to figure out what is it exactly that that I wanted to talk about as sort of the final entry in this series of heavy movies uh, or sorry scary movies this series of scary movies that I've been working my way through and honestly not all of these are scary movies but hey fuck it um had a little bit of trouble trying to figure out what the last one was gonna be and I'm gonna be real honest with you guys there was I was this close to doing a reevaluation of Halloween 2018 because I I don't quite have the same affection for Halloween 2018 I did after I first watched it you know it's one of those things that's kind of slidden it, it sort of slid down my list a little bit so I thought very seriously about doing an episode on that but I don't know I mean it seemed like that would be kind of a bummer to talk about you know and what's supposed to be kind of a fun series you know so I cast about and tried to figure out what else it might be and what I realized is number one I have never well I can't say never. I haven't talked very much about Halloween 6, The Curse of Michael Myers. And I have never even seen the producer's cut of Halloween 6, The Curse of Michael Myers. And so I thought, well, you know, that might be kind of a fun thing to talk about. You know, compare and contrast the two cuts. Which one do I like the most? Although, to be totally honest with you, it's kind of picking that shit out of Pepper, trying to figure out which of these is the best. Since I wouldn't exactly say that either of them are really all that great, but whatever. So uh, that's what I eventually settled on. And I guess at some point I will do a sort of a, I don't want to say critical, but maybe a little bit more of an objective reevaluation of Halloween 2018. I'll save that for another time. But for right now, you know, I do, I do kind of want to talk about Halloween, Halloween 6, the curse of Michael Myers. And the reason for that is because there's a very strong argument that no matter which cut of this movie that you prefer to watch, there's a very strong argument that this movie misses the entire point of what a Halloween movie is supposed to be. I mean, say whatever you want about Halloween 5, and there's a lot, much of which is not very good, but say whatever you want about Halloween 5, the fact is, it checks all the boxes, all right? Michael Myers is somebody who goes around stalking people and then killing people. It's really not a complicated concept, and yet for some reason, Hollywood has struggled with this concept on more than one occasion. So, again, you can, you can talk all the shit about Halloween 5 that you want, it's this, it's that, it's the other, you know, whatever. At the end of the day, it's a movie where Michael Myers goes around stalking people and then killing people. 
right? And you can't really say that, at least not as much, about Halloween 6. Halloween 6, I think, is... This is the moment when the Halloween series just went way too far up its own ass in terms of building out its its mythos and explaining this, that, and the other thing. Where, why is this happening? Where is that other thing coming from? You know, it some... And I kind of have to count myself among them, but some people would say that Halloween 6 kind of misses the entire point of what a Halloween movie is supposed to be. And in case it hasn't been made clear to anybody yet, yeah, I'm going to be getting into spoilers both for the theatrical cut and for the producer's cut. But then again, you know, I mean, I, I can't help thinking that anyone who would listen to a podcast about Halloween 6... Odds are you've seen at least the theatrical cut. You know, I'll go out on a limb and suggest, you know, yeah, probably most people have seen the theatrical cut. But just word to the wise, I am going to get into spoilers here a little bit. Now, in terms of scenes, you know, uh, the, the presentation of material in the movie, I think... I think it's fair to say that the theatrical cut of Halloween 6 has a pretty different beginning from the producer's cut, and it has a pretty, pretty, or I say pretty different, very different ending from the producer's cut. But, you know, when you, when you get into, like, the middle sections of the producer's cut and the theatrical cut, there really isn't very much to distinguish the two, you know? There's some stuff, you know, different score, different music. Um, you know, uh, sometimes you have scenes that are trimmed for really no apparent reason. Uh, so on and so on. Uh, but, you know, in the main, I I feel comfortable at least saying that from about, I don't know, maybe 15 or 20 minutes in into the movie until about 15 or 20 minutes until the end of the movie... There's not very much daylight between the theatrical cut of the film and the producer's cut. But in the beginning and the end, dude, all bets are off. And a good example of what I'm talking about is in the beginning of the uh, theatrical cut, uh, Jamie Lloyd, a character who had been well and truly and firmly established in Halloween's 4 and 5, not only does she die in the first... Again, I would say 15 or so minutes of Halloween 6, like the theatrical cut. Like, not only does she die in, like, the first 15 or 20 minutes of the theatrical cut, she gets the shit killed out of her in the first 20 or 15 or 20 minutes of the theatrical cut. I mean, there's there's getting murdered, and then there's getting killed, killed to death, the way that Jamie Lloyd gets killed, killed to death, in the, again, first 15 or 20 minutes of the theatrical cut. She makes it longer and the producer's cut, it, it, it's true, uh, but still. Um, and there is some some baloney that was going on behind the scenes um, with uh, Danielle Harris, the child actress who had originated the role in Halloween's 4 and 5, basically getting replaced uh, heading into Halloween 6. Uh, look, I don't know Danielle Harris. We've never met, and... And honestly, she's one of those people, I guess if I had a chance to meet her, it might be kind of cool. But, you know, mostly 
I don't really think I need to meet her, but my sense of her, nevertheless, is that she's a realist, all right? She's done all of these um, Halloween movies, and she's kind of a, when you think, it's weird to think about, but, I mean, she's been in the business, or had been in the business, for a pretty long time, and had done quite a lot of stuff by the time Halloween 6 was getting uh, gearing up to go into production. And so I think she was enough of a realist to understand that Michael Myers is ultimately the real star of these movies and that every other character in the movie sooner or later is, well, they've got an expiration date, right? They've got a half-life sooner or later their number's coming up, right? Now, I might give the give the nod to Loomis just because, number one, he is indispensable to the first movie. And number two, to whatever degree that the Halloween series ever had a star, like a movie star in it, Donald Pleasance was pretty much it. So I might make exception for him, um, for him. But everybody else, you know, all the other characters in the movie, sooner or later you're going to get poked with a knife, okay? It's That's what's going to happen. And so I, I don't think uh, Danielle Harris is stupid. I think she very well understood that if it wasn't Halloween 6 and it was going to be some other movie, sooner or later, Jamie Lloyd is going to get killed, killed to death. And when she is, that's it, show's over. And so having said that, I do think that maybe she expected... Jamie to have a little bit more to do in the movie or maybe have a, a, a bit more of a poignant death or because I mean guys it's easy to forget about it now but Jamie was kind of a fan favorite character primarily let's face it because of Halloween 4 I don't think Halloween 5 necessarily did Jamie any favors but anyway whatever but that's what I think was going on so the what I'm trying to say is the mere fact that Danielle Harris was probably told up front, yeah, your character is going to die. I don't think that by itself would have necessarily been a deal breaker just because of the fact, like I say, she would know, I think, that sooner or later, everybody, like all the non-Michael Myers characters in in these movies, sooner or later, they're all going to get poked with Michael Myers's knife, all right? It's just a matter of time. So even if you survive this movie that you're in right now and they decide to bring you back for the next one. Well, maybe the next one is going to be the one where you get it, you know, who's to say. So having said that, you know, I look at the way in which first off, just how quickly that whether, it, whether she dies right away or not, how quickly Jamie is, is dispatched in Halloween six. And then I, so, the, I mean, just that. She doesn't have a whole lot of screen time. And then you factor in, at least in the producer's cut, she doesn't get killed, killed to death, you know? She pretty well lasts, I would say, until about halfway through the movie, basically in a coma. And then and then, uh, uh, the man in black, I assume that's who it is, the man in black decides to air out her brain using a 9 millimeter, And that's the end of Jamie, you know? And... She didn't have any lines or really much of anything to do after, again, after about the 15 or 20 minute mark in the movie. And I can see where, you know, Danielle Harris, she is an actress and she may have wanted to do more than that. And 
Maybe a deal just couldn't be made. I don't know. What I can say, though, is that, man, I miss Danielle Harris in Halloween 6 in the worst fucking way. Because this is just... This is just bad, okay? I mean, first off, in the theatrical cut, like I keep saying, she gets killed, killed to death, right? She basically gets dropped onto a combine or whatever the fuck that thing is. And so she's just sitting there gasping and bleeding out. And then, to make matters worse, Michael Myers chooses that moment to go ahead and turn the combine on. And and then, well, that's it for Jamie, you know? In the producer's cut, this is a little bit more of a Halloween fatality. She gets, it, there's a lot of stab fall over in the Halloween films, right? Somebody gets stabbed, they fall over, right? And then, you know, generally they're dead. And honestly, it's really not until you see Jamie get taken to the hospital that you realize, oh my God, she survived getting poked with Michael Myers's knife, you know? That's not immediately clear because everyone keeps talking about, we found Jamie's body, only God can help her now, blah, blah, blah. And so... It's just, you start thinking, okay, so I guess she's dead. All right, so that's that. And then, no, she's, I can't say alive and well, but she is alive and she is in the hospital. She's just in a coma or some such, right? And then, like I say, the man in black comes along later and then ventilates her brain using a nine millimeter and then so much for Jamie. But I, I don't know. It's just, this is definitely the gore Halloween film. This is the one that has like, I would say almost some sort of over the top kinds of uh, death scenes and things that are just kind of, at least in my experience, a little bit foreign to the Halloween series. But you do, especially in the producer's cut, I would say you do get these, these sequences and scenes where it's, it's evident somebody, God only knows who, but somebody involved in making this movie knew what goes into a good Halloween movie in as much as it's all about atmosphere. It's about the suspense and the tension, you know, and what's about to happen. And, oh, my God, where's my... Is Michael about to pop out of the shadows? Like, what's going on? You know, and there's a lot of that. Well, I can't say... It. There's there's more of that in the producer's cut than there is the theatrical cut. But you get it, I would say, even in the theatrical cut, too. You know, this this kind of looming darkness that's always happening always lurking around somewhere in the background, you know, just out of sight. And somebody involved in the production of this film had their eye on what exactly a Halloween film is supposed to be. And the most I can figure is they kept getting shouted down by somebody who wanted more of this thorn cult type stuff or somebody else who wanted more gruesome and over the top kills and, and you know, that that sort of thing. And it it really is kind of a miss mishmash of conflicting agendas and uh, just conflict. I can't say conflicting tones, but almost like conflicting ambitions, right? But again, just to kind of move beyond the first few minutes of the movie, um, we basically settle in on the Strode family and it's, I can't remember if it's just not made clear in the film what exactly their relationship to Laurie Strode is. And I, I don't know. All I know is they move into the old Myers house and basically what the narrative requires the viewer to believe is that, um, uh, uh, Mrs. Strode, um, what's the, the, the creepy looking, uh, uh, boy, Danny Strode and, 
wow, I'm just looking at this character list and this is just all over the map. This is a fucking mess. All right, Kara. So we basically have to believe that uh, Kara Strode, Danny Strode, and Deborah Strode, that none of them know that they live in the Myers house. You mean to tell me that these people live in Haddonfield and they have no idea that this is the old Myers house? I, in, in fact, you know, the other thing, just since we're on the subject, the other thing that we're asked to believe is that um, John Strode is the father, the asshole father. He's unable to sell the house. Now, I'm willing to consider the, the, the likelihood that there's somebody in Haddonfield. In fact, there's probably nobody in, in uh, Haddonfield. Nobody in Haddonfield is willing to buy the old Myers house. I'm, I'm willing to believe that. All right. But we live in a world, and I'm talking about America here. I at least live in a country where we have a lot of sick and degenerate fucks who live here. And it's not a stretch to me at all to think that somebody in this country, in America would love to to own and maybe even live in a house where not only a serial killer lived, but he did some of his most famous work in, you know, in that house. And who knows, maybe he might return, you know? And I find it very easy to believe that somebody out there would be willing to live in that, buy and then live in that house. Buy it at the very minimum, but almost certainly they'd be willing to live in it. But again, if if we if we run with that premise, there is no movie. Although, would that really be so horrible? I don't know. Anyway, so whatever. Anyway, so that's one of the big, one of the more uh, major uh, conceits that the movie is kind of asking viewers to make. And you know, whatever, fine, I'll buy it. It's stupid, and I don't believe it. But whatever, I I, I buy it. It's a big ask, don't get me wrong, but I'm 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 willing to roll with it. So uh what I will say is that, you know, John Strode is just such a son of a bitch in this movie that you know, when you watch these Halloween movies, what I think what I think uh Carpenter wanted with the first Halloween movie he wanted you to have just a mild investment in the supporting characters. He, you know, he didn't want you necessarily to, to cry tears whenever people started dying, but he did want you to have a sense of who these people are, and he wanted you to have an opinion about them. Maybe you like them. Maybe you don't. Um, but either way, he wanted you to feel some kind of way when they, when they got theirs in the end. <clears throat> And John Strode is kind of unique in the the series of Halloween movies in that he's one of the people that I don't think anybody minds it when he finally gets what's coming to him. I mean, the guy is just an asshole. And in fact, you know what? Beyond being an asshole, it's pretty well shown he's verbally abusive and even a little physically abusive, you know? And so... I don't know. I mean, he does, he does get 
just a very brief and very minor bit of redemption in the producer's cut where he holds up a a, a, a it's a photo of a, of a Kara Strode, his daughter. And he's just sitting by himself. He's alone in his office. He's drinking. And he just says out loud, happy Halloween, kid. And, you know, I... The reaction that I've seen to that scene, it's like people have been like kind of weirded out by it. Like, why would this guy have a picture of his daughter on his desk at work? Oh, that's just creepy. And it's like, what the fuck are you talking about? I mean, look, I don't want to bore any of you with the minutia of my desk up at work, but it only has work-related stuff on there, okay? Um, that's it. There's no, well... I do have a toy car on on my desk. Uh, it's a, a Lamborghini. It's kind of a private joke between me and one of my coworkers, but it, it's just this little toy uh, Lamborghini Murcielago, right? Or I think it's a Murcielago. Whatever. It's a Lamborghini. That's the point. And so, so that's it. That's like the one non-work related thing that I have on my desk. In my drawers, that's a little bit of a different story. I've got all different kinds of candy and uh, uh, chips and some crackers and all different kinds of snacks and just junk food. Because, you know, I just like having snacks and stuff in the middle of the day. And so maybe you want some candy, you know, or, or maybe you want, uh, uh, you've seen them, those little Snickers bites that come in those little resealable bags. Maybe you're in the mood for some Snickers, so you just get a couple of those. Or some crackers, or just, you know, whatever you're in the mood for. You know, that's in that's in my drawer. But, you know, even that is kind of work-related in as much as it is supposed to get me through work. But I'm kind of the weird guy in the office because <clears throat> just about everybody else, they have pictures of their husbands or their wives. They have pictures of their kids. Um, just some kind of personal stuff. A few people have uh, some uh, just kind of funny images or some memes that relate to our company or or to my industry, or, or, or just whatever, you know, that's not unusual. Sorry, I just want to get a sip off of my Coke here. And you know what? <clears throat> I've been uh, sitting here talking now. For, it's been over 20 minutes. I want to get a couple drags off of uh, my vaporizer. All right, one more. Anyway, so, uh, so like I say, I mean, I'm like, I'm like the odd, the oddball in the office because I don't have anything personal on my desk. Whereas, like everyone else in the office, they've all got something, and usually a lot of somethings. You know, like I say, uh, pictures of family. There's this one guy who works on the other side of the floor. He's got a bunch of Superman uh, paraphernalia on his desk, um, you know, like keychains and some stickers and stuff like that. You, you you pretty well know who this guy's favorite superhero is. I mean, there's there's no mystery about that, you know. And so, like, to listen to people talk about it, you know, John Strode holds up a picture of his daughter and he says, Happy Halloween, kid. It's like, 
and people seem like they're like weirded out or freaked out or disturbed in some way by that. It's like, what's the problem? I mean, like, am I missing something here? Like I thought, and in fact, I see, like I say, every single day, people in the office where I work, they have shit tons of pictures of their family. He's got a couple of pictures on uh, of his family on his desk. I mean, yeah, the guy's a prick. I mean, there's there's really no two ways around that. But it's like at the same time, he does seem to have some kind of affection and love for his daughter. And it's like, this is kind of a humanizing moment, you know? And in fact, based upon his behavior from earlier in the film, it's a humanizing moment that I think entire swaths of the audience don't really completely buy into, but whatever, you know, there it is. So, you know, I don't know, whatever. It's just that, so that, like, not so much that scene, but like the way that people have reacted to that scene, to some of the reactions I've seen online. It's like, what the fuck are you guys talking about, you know? So there's the the Ring app. Sorry about that. I'm just going to, guys, I'm just going to go ahead and silence my cell phone. Hold on. All right. So anyway, so I don't get it is the point. It's like sometimes I get the idea that like the way that people talk online, it's like men are not supposed to have any kind of involvement in their family's lives. You know, it's like a, like a husband isn't supposed to tell his wife, hey, you look really pretty tonight, dear. Or... Uh, a, a father isn't supposed to say to his son or to his daughter, <clears throat> like to his daughter, you know, you look really pretty or, um, or say to his son, Hey, you did a great job, you know, with the game or, you know, whatever. It's like, he, we're all human guys. And, you know, people who have families, they do love their family members. It's, it's okay to show love and affection for the people that you have love and affection for, you know, it's okay to have a family it's I don't fucking get it. It's just weird, but uh, whatever. Anyway, so there's that. And like I say, that's that's included, that little bit of business with uh, uh, John Strode talking to uh, the picture of Kara. That's included in the producer's cut of the film, totally absent from the theatrical cut. And honestly, uh, I have to I have to say that this is maybe a, a cut that was made wisely. For the theatrical cut, it does, it does kind of humanize John in a way that sort of conflicts with his depiction throughout literally the entire rest of the movie. He's got that one human moment, and the rest of the time he's just this raging asshole, and it's just it's kind of jarring. So this is actually one change that the theatrical cut made. That I, I kind of I find myself having to agree with, you know, I I can see that. Another change in the theatrical cut is that there's overall less film score by um, Alan uh, Alan Howarth Howarth. I'm not sure how to pronounce the guy's name. That guy. Um, there's just less of his uh, uh, film score uh, going on in the theatrical cut, and what what you have instead is a lot of uh, sort of Nirvana type uh, type of yeah, Alan Howarth is his name. Um, there's a lot of uh, Nirvana uh, or just sort of I, I guess sort of generically grunge type of uh, type of uh, uh, guitars and just rock music that's going on. And 
I mean, honestly, it's kind of hard to say that one of those is far and away superior to the other. Uh, I like Alan Howarth, or at least I like his work in Halloween 4. Here in Halloween 6, what I remember of Alan Howarth's uh, work is that it is really derivative of what he did in Halloween 4. And what he did in Halloween 4 was intentionally sort of a continuation of what John Carpenter did in the score for the first Halloween movie. And he's just sort of carrying that forward. He's adding a little bit of his own stamp, you know, to certain things here and there. But in the main, you know, he, he basically, he depended a lot on, on, on Carpenter's foundation, you know, his musical foundation. And, you know, that was definitely a welcome approach for Halloween 4. Not completely welcome in Halloween 6. And considering the tone of the rest of the movie, I'm not even sure if that's really appropriate. I mean, I don't know. I have the beholder. Alan Howarth is an artist, and so it's not really, uh, it's not really for me to second-guess his creative process. But I, I don't know if... I don't know if that's necessarily as effective as it as it could have been. So I don't know. Whatever. Individual preference, I suppose. But uh, anyway, so again, so there are some musical differences. This is the point. There are some musical differences going on between the producer's cut uh, versus the theatrical cut. So just word to the wise on that. Now, when you start getting into the the reshoots that were done for this film. Obviously, that's where, you know, all, you know, the, uh, the, uh, most of the change, again, because there are some musical differences, but most of the changes were brought about primarily through reshoots. There are some editing changes too. They have kind of flashier edits, you know, with kind of like crashy sounds like, you know, type sounds in the uh, theatrical version. Uh, it just kind of gives it a little bit more of a slicker and glossier 90s type of uh, style to it. And again, whether or not that's appropriate is eye of the beholder. But one of the problems they definitely had with the theatrical cut was the reshoots. Uh, because after filming wrapped on Halloween 6 originally, Donald Pleasance passed away. And so when it came time to do reshoots, let's face it, there's only so much you can do uh, with with Donald Pleasance. I mean, with the Loomis character, you know? So you're pretty much stuck with what he's already shot. It is, it does kind of make for an interesting thought experiment. What might have changed uh, about the, I mean, would they have just completely reshot the entire fucking movie? If Donald Pleasance hasn't, uh, if he hadn't died and, you know, we'll never know, but nevertheless, you get the idea that the, the majority of what was retained from the um, from the uh, producer's cut, what more of that would have changed if they'd had the ability to shoot new scenes with Donald Pleasance? And basically, it's implied in the theatrical cut that that Doctor Loomis is dead. And honestly, I mean, if if they were ever planning to make Halloween Seven, knowing that Loomis is or rather that Donald Pleasance has died, you pretty much have to kill Loomis off because you're obviously you can't bring Pleasance back. So what are you supposed to do? So it's, it's implied in, in the theatrical cut that he, that he's, uh, that he's died, that, that he's dead. 
But the ending of <clears throat> the theatrical cut, except for the Loomis stuff, the ending of the theatrical cut is so radically different from the producer's cut. I mean, it's got the same actors, it's got the same characters, but man, the the conclusion of the producer's cut, I would say it's fairly ominous. It's kind of ambiguous. I'm not going to go so far as to call it low key. It definitely leave, it definitely leaves room for uh, sequels that can continue this Thorn storyline. And it kind of sets up uh, Dr. Loomis as he's going to be the new man in black now. Which, frankly, that's a series of movies I just don't need to see. But uh, Myers, you get the idea that now he's a free agent. Whereas before, he was controlled by the cult. Now he's in some way or another free. Now is he still a killer? Is he still going to go out running around stalking people and killing them, killing them to death? Wait, the movie doesn't really say. Not for sure. So, the theatrical cut, though, <clears throat> that's a whole different kettle of fish. The theatrical cut has, as far as I know, the most brutal and murderous sequence of Michael Myers just killing people left, right, and center that I have ever seen in any Halloween movie. I mean... By numbers, I don't think any I don't think there's any Halloween movie that shows him killing this many people in one go as what we see at the end of of the theatrical version of Halloween 6. I mean, he is just knifing people all over the fucking place. And as a series, I don't think Halloween is defined by all this graphic content and the gore and the blood and the guts and all that stuff, it's not really defined by that stuff. Again, it's supposed to be about mood and tone and atmosphere and kind of like paranoia, suspense, and all this other stuff. It's not really supposed to be about, you know, the 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 visceral, uh, I don't even know, just the, the visceral qualities of Michael Myers' Uh, not picking people off one at a time, but just storming into a room and just killing some motherfuckers, right? And honestly, the reason I kind of like that about the theatrical cut is, number one, it's kind of an interesting little change of pace. But number two, I mean, it's become very clear that the cult is controlling Michael. You know, they've, they've basically subverted him. They've basically conscripted him into their own little agenda. And it's... It's kind of implied in certain scenes before Myers goes on a killing spree. It's kind of implied that, you know, he doesn't really like that. He doesn't like having been used in this way. But he's kind of powerless to do anything about it because the cult controls him. Until he decides, hey, fuck it. I'm just going to go in there and start knifing some motherfuckers. And then that's what he does. He doesn't leave anybody alive. And it's implied at the end of the movie when... <clears throat> When, uh, <clears throat> golly, sorry, let me get another sip off of my Coke here. My throat is just going dry now. <clears throat> now, it's implied at the end of the movie that Tommy Doyle has, I don't know if you want to go so, if you want to be so literal as to say that Tommy has 
beaten Michael Myers to death, but he definitely beats him to within an inch of his life. I mean, there's no question about that. Uh, so, I mean, I don't know, like, what is a better move? It's, it's, I don't know, like I say, it's kind of like picking that shit out of Pepper, but one fucking huge difference. Like, somebody, I, I, I can kind of understand where somebody from Miramax uh, would have gotten uncomfortable with one particular aspect of the producer's cut. Just before uh, the man in black uh, ventilates uh, Jamie's brain using a nine millimeter. Jamie has a flashback, <clears throat> and it's implied that Michael Myers has basically raped her. And so the baby that everybody's running around with all through this movie, that is the product of not just rape, but specifically incest, you know? Uh, Myers, for one purpose or another, he forced himself onto Jamie and... You know, Golly. So, yeah, it's, uh, yuck. <clears throat> so, yeah, that's, needless to say, that's, uh, excluded from the theatrical cut. And sort of as a, uh, half-ass explanation of where the baby could have come from, in the big showdown between Michael Myers and Tommy Doyle at the end of the movie, in the theatrical cut, you see all these sort of twisted and deformed test tube babies that are in the background. And so you can kind of, you can kind of infer that these babies were the product of some kind of genetic engineering. And one of them got inserted into, uh, one of them got inserted into, uh, uh, Jamie and then she brought it to term and then gave birth. And then that's supposed to be, uh, I guess the sacrificial lamb so that, uh, Danny Strode can take over and become the new Michael Myers. So rather than being the product of rape and incest, you know, all those good things, uh, instead, I, you know, I get the idea that somebody, somebody uh, from Miramax, Miramax of all studios, said, yeah, nah, we're not, we're not doing that. We're not doing that. Uh, we're just going to leave it up to the viewer's imagination where this came from, you know? And, Honestly, that's a change that, yeah, it does take something away from the producer's cut, and I I recognize that. Guys, maybe I'm just kind of squeamish about stuff like that. I don't know. I don't need to see a movie that includes the suggestions of rape and incest and then a baby coming out of that. I mean, God damn. I, just, I don't need to see that. Nobody needs to see that. Nobody needs to think about stuff like that, okay? It's just it's fucking sick, okay? And this is one of those things where, yeah, I kind of have to come down with Miramax on this one, the Weinsteins of all people. Maybe we should cut out the rape stuff, you know? Maybe we should cut out the incest stuff, you know? Let's just leave that stuff out. Yeah, this is supposed to be a scary movie, but we got to draw the line somewhere. We're drawing it here. We're not doing that, you know? It, uh, that... Uh, that is one decision I absolutely understand and I definitely agree with. So anyway, now having said all of that, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of hard to say, you know, which, which version is better than the other. I will say that, you know, there, there is a very clear visual difference between the producer's cut versus the theatrical cut. The theatrical cut has this really kind of slick, polished 
and I would say finished sort of look about it. This is something that somebody, they at least wanted it to look good, you know? Whereas the producer's cut, it just has this kind of muted, sort of rough, unfinished look about it. Like there's no color timing or anything that's going on. And, you know, I don't know where the producer's cut was dug out of. I don't think that it was assembled specifically for the purpose of home video release. I think somebody instead found Masters for the producer's cut, and they said, fuck it, we're, we're going to release this. But no one actually sat down and recut the movie to align with the original producer's cut. I don't, I don't think that's what happened. And again, a big part of why I think that is just the fact that the producer's cut just has this kind of rough, so almost grimy sort of look about it, you know? If you put the, the, the uh, theatrical cut right up next to the producer's cut, especially in any scenes that involve like harsh light, like bright light or anything like that, you really can see a difference. You know, it's a kind of obvious difference, in fact. And so, I don't know. I mean, <clears throat> the theatrical cut, it's just slicker, it's glossier, it's got more of a polish to it, but it's also just got more unnecessary gore and all that stuff. And honestly, except for the members of the Thorn cult getting just hacked down, in the operating room at the end of the theatrical version. I don't really think that we need to see that kind of blood and gore and all that just gross stuff in a Halloween movie. I just don't. So, <clears throat> which one is better? Honestly, it's almost kind of pointless to ask. I don't think either one of them are all that great. What I will say is that if I ever get a, uh, a wild hair to watch Halloween 6 again... I'm probably going to lean towards watching the watching the uh, producer's cut. It's just it it tells a more complete and more coherent, God knows, uh story than the theatrical cut. But it's just, you know, like I said, guys, I mean, you you can you you can shit on Halloween 5 as much as you want. But Halloween 5 <clears throat> Halloween 5 is a movie where Michael Myers goes around stalking people and killing them. And in the end, that really is what Halloween films are supposed to be all about. And you just don't get as much of that with, you know, with Halloween 6. And it's... This is one of those times... It is, and in fact, it's actually kind of ironic now that I think about it. There was a pretty significant interval between the release of Halloween 6 and Halloween 5. I want to say that there's something like a five or six year gap between the two, like six years, something like that, <clears throat> between Halloween 5 and Halloween 6. And usually when there's that kind of gap between movies, well, I can't say usually, but there's at least frequently the opportunity to really take your time with something to really baby it and make it the best that it possibly can be. And in spite of the, the six-year gap between the two movies, it's like Halloween 6 still comes off like it was rushed somehow, even though in theory it took six fucking years to get to this point. So how could it, how could it possibly have been rushed? And yet, that's kind of the way that, that it plays out. So I don't know. Um, and, you know, in terms of technical stuff, 
you know, uh, just kind of, you know, creepy imagery and, and uh, spooky uh, atmosphere and lighting, you know, you're probably not going to go wrong watching either one. It's just that the producer's cut, I think, is far more dependent upon atmosphere than the theatrical cut, where the theatrical cut is definitely dependent upon gore. But one of the kind of interesting things about this is the... <clears throat> The uh, producer's cut does have uh, just a tiny little bit of boobage in it. Not much, but there is a tiny helping, you know, for those who care about such things. You do see a, just a little bit of, uh, of uh, boobies in the movie. And, um, you know, it's actually kind of interesting that, in general, as these Halloween movies have gone on, the the further along you get in the series, the less skin you tend to see. And I actually kind of like that, you know, because again, I mean, Halloween as a film series, it's not about, um, the, the, these are not Saw movies, you know, you know, you don't, you know, the franchise of, of Halloween is not, you know, blood and guts and body parts flying all over the place. You know, that's really not it. Uh, it's about, you know, the mood and the atmosphere of stuff. And I think the same thing is true, you know, for, the well for the naked scenes you know yeah you get some some uh uh, uh boobs in in uh, the first halloween movie a little bit and then you get some boobs in the second halloween movie but starting in the fourth because the third one doesn't really count so starting in the fourth one like one of the girls uh takes her shirt off she's still wearing her bra you understand but she takes her shirt off and you can um, kind of infer what what they're doing or what they're about to do but you don't really like you see her bare back and that's about it you know and in halloween 5 you see some people that are making out with each other and like this is definitely a pants down sort of a thing so you don't really see anything there either and here in halloween 6 like i say there's a tiny little bit you know it pretty much it is you know blink and you miss it so there's a tiny little bit of uh nakedness but you don't you just don't really see a whole lot, you know? So this is definitely a little bit of a break from what had become the tradition in Halloween's four and five. And I don't know, I mean, I think that stuff like that, again, it's supposed to be about the mood and the atmosphere of it. You shouldn't really need to see uh, the, the boobage to know that there was boobage going on. You don't need to see somebody get their throat cut out to know that somebody, in fact, got their throat cut out. This, these movies are really, a, to me, they're, they're more about what you don't see, you know? And you know what they say, the theater of your mind is always, it's always more uh, uh, visceral anyway, you know? So I don't know. All in all, it's, um, it's kind of hard to recommend either, either cut of, of uh, this movie to anybody, to tell you the truth. But if, like I say, if I ever get a wild hair to watch either version ever again, I'm leaning towards uh, the uh, producer's cut just because yeah it's got the you know the incest McRapey stuff going on but it's at the, you know at the very least I can just skip past that bit because it's only like a few seconds long so I can just skip right over that and there's at least more of a complete story that's being told and that you know when it's all said and done isn't that what we're really here for anyway you know so when I think back though on the original franchise, I mean, just full stop, you know, we, you know, Halloween 3 doesn't really belong anywhere on the list, um, but in terms of the movies that I like the most, 
honestly, I mean, I think the first Halloween is probably at the top of everybody's list. I mean, that's the one that everybody points to and says, yep, that right there is cinematic perfection. There, there you go. Um, for me, the, the second best on the list is actually guys got to tell you Halloween four. Uh, I don't really get as much into Halloween two to me. I would put Halloween two and Halloween five They're, I would say they're about even with each other. You know, so number one is the first Halloween. Number two is Halloween 4. Number three, I don't know. Uh, pick one. Halloween 2, Halloween 5. To me, they're just not that different from one another, you know? And then at the very bottom of the list for this original series, you know, the original series of films, the producer's cut of Halloween six. It's, I don't know. It's, it's not great, but at the very, what I can say is that at least at certain times, you know, the mood and the energy of the film is right where it needs to be. Now, yeah, it frequently gets lost in all of this cult bullshit, but, uh, whatever. At the very least, somebody involved with this movie had an, they had the agenda of making the best Halloween movie they possibly could, and they frequently got shouted down. So it's kind of a shame, to tell you the truth. But it's like anything. I mean, you know, it, it does kind of make you wonder. This is kind of a simple concept. How, uh, my, in these Halloween movies, Michael Myers stalks people. And Michael Myers kills them to death. And... How can you possibly introduce a variation on that formula that doesn't betray said formula? And, you know, it may be that it's just not possible to do. I don't know. But, you know, when it comes to, you know, this, this original series, what I think the best movies are, I'm probably going to continue reaching for Halloween, like John Carpenter's Halloween, and then Halloween 4. And, you know, these other ones, those are kind of interesting curiosities. Don't really need them, you know? I mean, yeah, you kind of have to admit Halloween 2 into your mental canon of these films in order to even get into Halloween 4, but, you know, whatever. I guess aside from that, you know, really, the two best movies in in the original series, without question, are the original and Halloween 4, and those, honestly, those are the ones that I recommend that that people watch, so... I guess everyone else is welcome to, to make up their own mind about that, make their own decisions, but at least for me, that's where I'm coming from with it. And so that, I think, is, uh, I think that's gonna, that's gonna just about do it, not only for Halloween 6 and the comparison between these two different cuts, but really the, this kind of scary movie Halloween season series that I'm, that I'm going through. So, anyway, now... For uh, my next episode, um, basically what I did, and at the time that you guys are hearing this, this was months ago, but I finally got around to watching uh, that uh, uh, that uh, Tolkien film, the bio movie, uh, several months ago. And so, also several months ago, I did an episode about it, and I even included po uh, podcast feedback from no less than Gene Gene, the podcasting machine Hendrix, the host of the Hammer Strikes podcast. So that's going to be in next week's um, uh, next week's episode. But uh, that's for next week. So I think that's pretty much it for me this week. So bye, everybody. I will see you next week. Bye.
Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find this show on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. My Facebook group is the only official place where you can find everything that has anything to do with this show. The reason for that is because I despise Twitter. Pretty much everything about Twitter sucks. So join the Facebook group today. Speaking of Facebook, you can friend me just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trentusmagnus at gmail.com. But remember, all feedback and correspondence emailed to me will be read on mic unless you request otherwise. So, if your email isn't intended for public consumption, don't forget to say so. Otherwise, I'll assume that you want your correspondence to be heard by my dozens, and dozens, of fans across the world. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise! Since we're on the subject of feedback, Trentus Magnus Punches Reality can be found on iTunes just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. Won't you take a moment to rate my show on iTunes? That helps new listeners find the show. And just in case you don't think that I've given you enough shit to click on just yet, you can sponsor my show simply by going to twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the PayPal button, donate any amount at all, specify that you're sending Magnus some monetary love, and you will be an official sponsor of my show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy. And there's no minimum donation. Be a Trennis Magnus show sponsor today. I don't have a Patreon. Because if you think that I hate Twitter, boy, just wait till you hear what I think of Patreon. So, if you want to throw some bucks my way, the Two True Freaks PayPal link is the way to do it. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law. Some assembly required. Batteries not included. Many will enter. Few will win. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trinus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus... Media Enterprises Limited Production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy.
everybody, Magnus here. The hiatus is over and Trinus Magnus Punches Reality is back. And you know what else is back? Magnus talks about Smallville. My podcast's usual discussion about comics, movies, and TV shows periodically gets put on hold so that I can go full fanboy on Smallville. Smallville is the most underrated live-action adaptation of Superman in all of history, and personally, it's my favorite live-action incarnation of Superman. And I'm not alone either, because listeners all around the world have been shocked to discover just how awesome Smallville is, and just how well it holds up to critical scrutiny. Now that the hiatus is over, I'm planning to continue my reappraisal of Smallville Phase 2 by taking a deep dive into the Sainted Season 7. Through the course of my discussion, I'll reveal why the Sainted Season 7 is my favorite season of Smallville's entire run, and I want you along for the ride. Check out Magnus Talks About Smallville, returning to Trinus Magnus Punches Reality in the summer of 2019. And listen for yourself about why Smallville in general and the Sainted Season 7 in particular are both awesome. Magnus talks about Smallville. Coming back soon to twotruefreaks.com.